0: This is New Books in Science, and I'm Maya Woolner, your podcast host today. This morning I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Theodore Porter about his new book, Genetics in the Madhouse: The Unknown History of Human Heredity, published by Princeton University Press in 2018. Dr. Porter is distinguished professor of history at University of California, Los Angeles, where he teaches in the history of science, medicine, and technology field. His publications include The Rise of Statistical Thinking from 1986. Trust in Numbers, The Pursuit of Objectivity in Science and Public Life, from 1995, and Carl Pearson, The Scientific Life in a Statistical Age, 2004. Good morning, Dr. Porter. It's a pleasure to speak with you today.
1: Good morning. Nice to be here.
0: So let me start by asking you briefly to describe to our listeners what historical questions first animated your research for genetics in the madhouse
1: uh well i was uh interested in the I mean, i've been interested in the uses of numbers and statistics and data um you know in his, in history for much of my career um and uh i began this project uh, trying to understand the the uh, the relationship between the um, the uh, um the invention of uh genetics which is very often dated to about well attributed to gregor mendel uh, uh, 30 years earlier and then really dated to the rediscovery or the recognition of his work in 1900. And, uh, and there's been a long debate about, uh, uh, you know, which began in the time about the relation between uh, a, a kind of understanding of human heredity or of heredity, which was about genes and one which looked at the characteristics instead and, uh, and was more densely statistical. It turns out that, both sides are actually highly statistical, but, um, um, I mean, I got, I got into the project in its current form and when, when, um, you know, rather to my surprise, I discovered that there was this whole world of, you know, of, uh, investigation of human heredity, uh, anchored in places like insane asylums. So that was what really got me. That was what really got me going. And the question then is, um, is, uh, how, I mean, or maybe the, the, the real issue is, um, Uh, you know, should we really be moving beyond seeing this as a, you know, as a work of science by a disinterested scientist, or, you know, in this case, he's interested, say Mendel and Mendelism is about reading, or is it, but, you know, it forms into university uh, programs and departments uh, in the early 20th century. Is that really where genetics and, you know, the study of heredity began, or... Are there these other kinds of institutions, like insane asylums, where um, where uh, engage, you know engaged in the very practical and uh, troublesome business of trying to uh, manage insanity and uh, and even to cure it. Is, it? is it rather out of this more um, you know engaged uh, and uh, well, I mean engaged in administrative form rather than as a, as a kind of basic. Science. So those are the kinds of questions that, that you know entered into this as I was formulating it.
0: And how would you summarize your essential argument in the book?
1: Now, the main point, uh, you know, first of all, is is exactly that the uh, the the uh, uh, insane asylums, and then beginning in the what's us eighteen seventies or eighteen eighties, we have to add in um, schools for. Children who were called feeble-minded. So I'll just use that word as if it were not, uh, you know, offensive to anybody. But that's because that is the word they use. The feeble-minded. That 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 by the 1880s and 1890s was perhaps even more fundamental. Uh, but those. Two, so these two kinds of institutions are really the place where um, where um, you know, work on hu- human heredity took shape. Um, I've had uh, some reviews already, and uh, they tend to see the at least, you know certainly the 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 book uh, before the, the material I cover before 1900 as showing the uh, you know the role of uh, this uh, dangerous you know terrible field of eugenics in the uh, rise of uh, of human heredity or, the, or or in the science of heredity and while in a way that's true my the the argument actually kind of goes beyond eugenics or is not limited to eugenics. Uh, certainly the motive for investigating heredity was in the, in the 19th century uh, as it was in the early 20th century was above all this concern about the um uh the effect on the quality of 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 a population of letting people who had mental illness Reproduce so the eugenics is is there all the way through. What surprised me more that i mean that when that was uh, that i hadn't really i hadn't appreciated how much discussion there was like that, but I was more surprised to discover that um they were actually quite serious in their in their hereditary investigations, and there's a whole research tradition which is bound up with eugenics but is not simply is not only eugenics but it is a kind of well let's just say you know a a, a quantitative data oriented Uh, you know, basic research on human heredity.
0: I see. So there's some terminology that I want to discuss before we get further into uh, the details of the book. And so for the sake of clarity, um, I wanted to ask if you could explain to our listeners the difference between phenotypic and genotypic heredity. And does your work deal with both types or do you focus on one over the other?
1: Okay, I mean that's uh, you know a quite fundamental issue, and it's a little bit what I was talking about already. Uh, genotype is the, is, you know, in simple terms is genes. Um, that so uh, the word genetics was in, was developed or was you know coined uh, about in the early uh, in the first decade of the 20th century, it was about genes. the new science of genetics was inspired by this. Uh, excitement about Mendel's uh, breeding experiments. Mendel's breeding experiments were were um, kind of agriculturally oriented uh, um, experiments on, uh, on pea hybrids. It was really a study of hybridization, and maybe that could be a model for understanding all kinds of human heredity. The, so through the early 20th century in that tradition, this genotypic tradition, this emphasis on genes, the idea of uh, heredity was to find the genes for interesting characteristics and that might be you know milk production in cows or the quality of corn or something but it, and it might be you know in eugenic terms it might be something about about people whether they exhibit weaknesses like feeble-mindedness whether they um you know achieve uh you know greatness in uh, you know whatever in science or athleticism or anything so uh, but the but the orientation is absolutely towards the genes and they were most they were happiest in this uh, in, in this uh, you know early 20th century work when they found a discontinuous characteristic that is to say which was had one form when the gene was present and some other form when the gene was absent and there's a whole discussion and debate about whether uh, mental illness or um feeble mindedness are uh, are like that um and uh, you know, quite a lot of effort to to to, uh, to demonstrate that if it were true, I mean that is, if it had worked out, uh, then that would be a, those would be genotypic traits. That is, they would be co- you know um, coded by the presence or absence of some gene, which could be spoken of as you know of, as uh, as bearing that defect. The other way of uh, you know of doing it, uh, which uh, which goes way back and is which is uh, almost. Uh, well it's mainly what this tradition i have you know uncovered was engaged in uh, didn't uh, didn't look for genes first of all they um they proceeded by uh, you know by measuring something or by registering its presence or absence do the do people who are in asyl- asylums tend to have children who also end up in asylums um now, you know, if, 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 if there were a gene, then you would expect it to happen. And there has to be some kind of genetic coding, I suppose. But, um, I mean, if it, to, to the extent that it's true, but, um, um, but the real, the way of proceeding in the investigation is simply to look at the trait. Is the trait present or absent? Is the person, are the, you know, the children of tall people tall uh, or are they, you know, are they average or are they even, you know, so, uh, the, the, uh, the way the way of studying this, which was uh, was then called, and now the word has changed, it's meaning the biometric, but statistical is another version of this. The biometric way was to look at the traits and to measure them, or to register their presence of ab- or absence, and not to assume that the characteristic had a single genetic unit, a gene, or a genetic factor that uh, either produced you know either either produced it or not or the, um, yeah, as the um, geneticists use the word um, 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 segregation, uh, that is to say, does it split between presence and absence of the gene? Can you see a, a radical difference between these things? For a thing like human height, let's say, or human abilities of various sorts, you, I don't think very many people think you see that kind of discontinuity. So anyhow, these, this tradition is about is mostly about looking at the, at the measured characteristics and not assuming that they can be traced back to to a a gene or genetic element whose presence or absence determines what you see.
0: Thank you so much for that clarification. That's very helpful. So now I want to ask you, why do you begin the period that you cover in your book in 1789? And how did King George III of England's mental health initiate a debate about insanity and record keeping?
1: Right. Right. I mean, I, the, the King George is an amazing story, and so it was kind of irresistible. And there's, uh, it, as it happens, there's not a radical gap, but uh, but for a couple of decades, I don't really have anything else uh, of you know of, of that level of you know engagement. So, but so well, I mean, in some sense, it's it was it was irresistible, and it more perhaps is more that it manifests things that were gradually developing than that it was itself an important event. Uh, I mean, in the in generating the kind of the kinds of uh, activities that I write about but um, so what but absolutely showed um, um, the it it reveals the um, uh, the serious beginning of record keeping um, as a public responsibility I mean it is uh, interesting it's kind of the the point of origin of all this is exactly record keeping and um institutions like insane asylums which which uh you know begin appearing in in great numbers uh somewhat later were expected to do that the record keeping on uh on let's say at bedlam bethlehem, bethlehem is it's a, you know real name of the, the 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 famous london asylum was very scanty there were some records around and actually there were also records kind of kept but not published anywhere or printed which people might when they got interested they would go looking for this and then uh, when you know the the king george's madness uh, uh, inspired this um important question well uh, you know was the king likely to recover or not if he wasn't going to recover uh then uh it would make sense to appoint a regent to replace him there also and uh, the um the uh uh the, the play and then film which, uh, which is the film is called the madness of King George kind of brings this out nicely. There's lots of people who wanted the king to be found to be incurably insane, so they could bring in a more kind of moderate, you know, Whiggish, uh, uh, his son, who would be you know, allow more power to to Parliament. So this uh, vast debate uh, about whether the um, uh, whether the uh, evidence from previous experience with insane asylums with patients of asylums uh, uh, allowed one to believe that the king was likely to recover or not. And uh, William Black, the doctor who had uh, kind of cut his teeth in this kind of investigation, as many people did studying smallpox inoculation in the, you know, in the century before uh, um, cowpox, you know, Jenner's cowpox uh, 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 vaccination, uh, uh, went into the records of the Bethlehem Asylum, uh, they didn't actually have. They did not have public records of the kind he was looking for. But he discovered an apothecary, the druggist, or the kind of an assistant uh, director of the institution who was keeping them privately. So, uh, the um, the story of King George, which is wonderfully, you know, amazing for its, uh, for in in itself also brings out the pressures which became quite intense to have proper records on you know what was going on in these institutions and the keeping of pro- proper records and the. Either uh, you know, and, and making them available to the public, at least, or uh, well, I mean, to, to, to the to the public and for investigation is just the ground on which this whole study is built. It was only because there were these kinds of records that it was possible to have the kind of of uh, of uh, you know a, a scientific or whatever scientific medical uh, uh, developments that I mostly describe in this book
0: what were some of the ways in which early um, European and North American alienists as psychiatrists were then called used record keeping to investigate human heredity as a source of insanity? Maybe you can tell us about some of the particular individuals who were engaged in this process.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, that's really the, the point where it all begins. And um, uh, actually already uh, black in uh, uh, 1790 published in his he rewrote his book on the oh kind of the st- statistical causes of death uh, and he now included this material on um, on the uh, on bethel asylum and he summed it up in a bunch of tables so the table is going to be for quite a long time in this story the main vehicle of you know investigation and, uh, and observation for for looking at human heredity he he, he printed a table uh, uh giving the uh, the distribution of all the the causes of of insanity and how many of the patients at Bethlehem exhibited each of these, and one of those causes was family and hereditary and it was actually it was the second largest number, but the largest number was kind of a grab bag of what they called moral causes um like you know disappointment and uh you know deaths in the family and things like that so it was quite an important it shows up as a quite quite an important cause um in france um this table like that in uh, 1816 using the great you know based on the work of the great paris hospitals and then you see tables of this sort you know you know appearing uh you know gradually until i would say about the late 1820s or 1830s when it becomes quite routine so and um so the tables were um you know, there, are actually, there are lots of the whole series of different tables that appear in all the reports. It's kind of a triumph of uh, whatever data consciousness or statistics already that the reports of the of the uh, of these, you know, public or semi-public insane asylums were written by the medical superintendents or uh, you know directors of the institutions were often very much oriented around the around the statistics. And, uh, those, so those one statistics that almost always is almost always appears, uh, pr- probably because it is the sort of thing that doctors would routinely put in their, um, in their case reports from, you know, from, a, from an earlier tradition was the cause. So there would be a table of causes. Uh, uh I mean, they, they were, they're idiosyncratic and quirky things in some ways. Uh, and, uh, it's. I I could say a lot about that, but let's just say almost always there is a table uh, of the causes of heredity and um causes of insanity and heredity was um typically quite prominent among those so the f- in a way the first part of this story is just very simply the um this move towards routine record keeping about causes of insanity. I'd just say a little bit more about that. I was you know seeing all these tables which i well i you know I began the work you know in uh looking at data produced in, uh, you know, in around 1900. And then I came to recognize the importance of these institutions and I began tracing it back and I found that it was already going on in the 1820s and 1830s. And I was extremely curious, what how, how did they get these kind of numbers? And part of the answer is easy and is, uh, you know, all over the archival records. They had big admission books and they wrote down, they entered all these, um, and each patient would have a, a, a horizontal line across the page or across two pages. And then there would be all the, a, a, a lot of categories running from you know, vertically and uh, one or two of those, um, of those uh, uh, vertical, uh, uh, you know, uh, columns would have something about the cause or cause. And maybe they would mention heredity specifically. Um, and um, I, you know, was, uh, so I, I had been quite, you know, um, i was surprised and impressed to discover this, this kind of information and um it was the though so, i mean so um so anyhow it was it was easy to uh, uh or to take the the you know the columns in the table and to add up the numbers and to produce or the columns in the in the registration book and add up the numbers to produce a table uh the, you know the next question is what kind of an exchange happened between the doctor and somebody actually, I didn't even know for sure it was a doctor for a while, and then it became kind of clear to produce that kind of number so um uh, uh, and but that in a way that that's the most basic the most basic level of this investigation is just writing down a cause which, as I think I now understand, usually came from a family member, but sometimes perhaps from the patient themselves and also sometimes from a the patient's physician or a public health doctor who had had some role before the person was sent to the asylum for producing this number but that's the most basic thing and um it's uh you know it's okay so and uh, and it was a big number so as they became discouraged about curing their patients they got more and more interested in obstructing the causes obstructing the action of the causes and there sits there was this figure this big figure for heredity in all, almost all the tables, and they got extremely interested in that. That's where the yeah, that's where the story kind of begins.
0: You have a very interesting discussion. I recall about the reliability of family testimony um, stating hereditary uh, hereditary causes. So, thank you very much for that. Who was Jules Bayanger, and how did his tabular forms? inspire a shift away from the old one-dimensional asylum tables to statistics that try to pose more specific questions?
1: Right. Uh, I mean, is a uh, um is, exactly, well, he was, among other things, he was the editor of the, um, of the, I think the first of the lasting um, asylum journals or journals of mental illness um, in the early 1840s. And he was, I mean, there's a, a, quite a, quite a debate in france about what, about whether to put any faith in these numbers at all. He was definitely on the side who did believe in the numbers um, and he wanted to go beyond he's one of the first people who wanted to go beyond simply writing down what the patient told told him i just want I actually want to insert at this point just this interesting fact that it seems as if the patients did say her, did did say uh, heredity that is uh, it wasn't that the doctors Heredity wasn't as a cause wasn't the doctor's idea. Heredity was also the way that family members, you know, lay, lay people talking about insanity understood it as hereditary when they saw a family member. So anyhow, but you have these sort of routinely collected tables, and is that a way you're going to learn anything about the real causes of heredity? Biagé thought, well, not enough, that that's too, uh, too uh, routine and not a real basis for investigation. We need, he thought, the big numbers that come from, uh, from, you know, institutions, I mean, that like insane asylums, uh, ho- holding all these patients, we also need the questions to be precise enough that we can, um, uh, c- c- can, uh, you know, can get a, a real specific sense of what, the, what kind of a cause you have. Now, I should say his interest was actually in the, especially in the, um, um, the relative, um, uh, potency of, uh, of heredity coming from male and female lines. So actually different kinds of ancestors, mother's mother, mother's father, father's mother's father, father, and on the way back. And which of these, which, which of these had the most effect on the children and actually did it have more effect on male or female children? So he has this pretty specific, you know, idea for investigation. And he thought the way to get that kind of data was we had to, we couldn't just tally up what, what the, what the you know what the patient or the, the family members or somebody said in the asylum reports he wanted instead to have a table to send it around to doctors uh and which they would write their name in the upper left and then they would fill out for families um, you know what the, the health of uh, of of a lot of ancestors and then uh, and then how this bore on the on uh, on all the children so um, he was trying to move from simple kind of what 's say medical bureaucratic record keeping to something more like medical scientific record keeping and i don 't want to exaggerate the radical the radicalism of his shift, but he definitely thought that he had to, you know the the, that the, uh, the researcher the med, the doctor had to take a more active role in shaping that kind of investigation and by the you know from quite early this is in the again the, in the mid 1840s. And by the mid 1840s, uh, there's already an effort to, to make this less bureaucratic and more, you know, more, more, more active research. And Bayerge is, uh, is, is, one of those people.
0: So let's take another step forward then. And I'll ask you to explain what pedigree tables are and why Ludwig Dahls were ahead of their time.
1: Um, I mean, in some way, it's a hard question. Uh, so pedig- pedigree tables—that uh, uh, would be, uh, you know, a list of. Pro- I mean, there are different ways of constructing it. It doesn't always have to start with an ancestor. It might start with the present person and trace their ancestry. So that is, say, one of them uh, gets uh, increases by going, uh, you know, backward in time, and one of them increases by going forward in time. If that, if that's where that is, if I have two parents and four grandparents and so on. Or if we start with my great, my, you know, grandparents, you know, they happened, to, or the Porter ones had 13 children. So then, you know, so we had 42, you know, cousins. So it can go either way, but basically, whatever, whatever way you do it, it is, um is it is um, um following a family, uh, following a family trait from, almost always from an individual. So Dahl, uh, uh, anyhow, who is Norwegian, as it happens, uh, did it from. Mostly started from a single ancestor, and then tried to track it down um, to the to all the descendants. Um, he did that in 1859. Tables like that um, became uh, that began to be produced in the hundreds and thousands uh, about 1900. So he's way ahead in some ways, or at least I don't I don't want to imply that he's uh, you know that he's made a scientific discovery that nobody understood for 40 years or something, but he's doing this. For 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 his reasons um, and um, what they didn't really take, though so people thought they were interesting. And then they, when they did you know, take off, you know, again around the eighteen nineties or early nineteen hundreds, then people went back and they actually found Dolls, Doll, and uh, or maybe maybe even they were inspired by him a little bit to do that. I'm not sure. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, you know kind of the um his relation to the to the story is he seems to be um you know outside seems to be you know done something which uh which nobody really either well either they didn't think to do it or perhaps they didn't have the means and it's probably something like not having the means is the better explanation in any case the Norwegian or the Scandinavian situation was fairly distinctive they had actually had um, what was regarded in Europe as probably the best census of insanity that is not just counting people in the institutions but going around and knocking on doors and asking whether there was an insane person there and keeping uh, keeping records like that uh and Dahl actually used uh, and they wrote down the names and then Dahl actually used those names and the and a and a map of the intensity of insanity in different regions to try to find the Regions with the highest insanity, and to see if he could figure out why, and you know, well, what 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 kind of a answer might that question give? Well, it might be that you know there, there's something in their diet or the weather or I mean, their environmental explanations seem quite possible. Dahl, uh, after a while, determined you know, but he went and he's uh, you know, using all these records. He tried to find every every person who could be counted as insane or I'll just introduce the word idiotic or idiot which is which was a technical term at the time so some kind of mental you know defect or some kind of um, of uh, you know insanity of, of uh, mental illness uh, and try to find every all all the mem- all the people in that community who showed signs of conditions like that and to um well now he uses this uh, the uh, um a word uh, the, the german word is the Danes actually write. I mean, the Norwegians write in Danish, so it's, the word is spelled A N L A E G with that A E as a joined letter, Anleg or something. But uh, anyhow, he's, he has an idea that uh, he can track this thing, so that the uh, predisposition or the this um, this sort of genetic source, a hereditary source of uh, of uh, insanity, can be followed from perhaps from person to person. He has a great ambition to try. I mean, but he he has these these uh, Scandinavian, these resources available, the Scandinavians of the Norwegian government also paid him to do it, to go try to find out what the causes were. And he, uh, um, he in the end used his, these, the pedigree table, which again is the chart of the, the you know, a family tree with all the persons with certain kinds of, uh, of hereditary mental conditions or nervous conditions indicated on it. He used that to try to understand, maybe he thought, the reason is nothing to do with the weather or the customs or culture of the, of the place. Maybe it's just that somebody came in with that f- hereditary factor and spread it. Well, so that's, that's, the, that's the kind of project that he was engaged in. And it, uh, it becomes, you know, 40 years later, it becomes everybody's favorite way to investigate um, human heredity.
0: What was at stake in the debate over the validity of Morel's theory of degeneration?
1: Um, okay, so Morel writes the the I mean the, the, there are theories of degeneration uh, of one sort or another going way back. Morel uses the word degénération for um, for a kind of hereditary, hereditary um, um, defect. Um, it's a so his. Uh, um, in a way, his uh, his under the understanding of heredity that underlies that kind of uh, investigation is extremely different from from what was already quite common among many oh let's say many people interested in heredity and it was, that would often be doctors who are interested in human heredity. Um, I would say the the sort of uh, maybe it's maybe it's not fair to say common sense, but I, I think for us the common sense understanding of heredity is, uh, is something is I would suspect something of being hereditary if uh, you know if the child has the same characteristic as the parents. And Morell's approach here is sharply different. Uh, uh, he says that um, heredity is exhibited by a trajectory of change. That is, so that the hereditary. Um, impulse is not causing the children to be like the parents, but causes, at least in some families, uh, a, f- uh, a parents with some uh, some kind of defect, like uh, a susceptibility to uh, to drink, or a nervous disorder, to decay, to get worse over over the generations, and by you know, I mean not perhaps always, but often uh, you know, leading to the extinction of the to the decay of the hereditary line and the extinction of the family. So it's a sharply contrasting, uh, you know, version of what goes on in heredity, not like produces like, but that uh, a ancestor with a certain kind of defect is launched on a, on a trajectory of decay, which is going to lead to ever more serious uh, conditions and then, and then the extinction of the, uh, of the family. Now um, that, um, it comes out of France, and probably it was strongest in France. But it was uh, people were people were interested in, in it all over, I think. Uh, and the, the most of the people I'm looking at the, um, the asylum, most of the asylum tradition wasn't. Well, I'm not even sure I should say that. Quite a lot of them were were less impressed, and the other version of investigation went on. The version of looking for a likeness from 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 from. Uh, you know, from parents to their, to to their descendants, but it's, so it's at stake. Um, you know, is, is, is heredity really about something that's stable and that, you know, and that continues to be transmitted, or is it some kind of a process of, uh, of decay, which again, is not produced by the environment or something or diet or anything like that is produced by a tendency of the, whatever the hereditary elements are to, um, to, to become less and less viable, to exhibit more and more effects, not because of the environment affecting things, not because of natural selection or something, but just because of this this process of decay. So there's some uh, you know quite quite serious argument about that, and some people had a big stake in that not being not being the case. Uh, yeah, but. Um,
0: Thank you for that clarification. So I was struck actually by a statement that you made in chapter six, uh, where you write that, quote, by 1859, eugenics in a broad sense was old hat. Uh, I was wondering if you could expand on this.
1: Okay, well, I say in a broad sense, because the word was not old hat. And the word was made up by Francis Galton, I think, 1883. Francis Galton is almost always given credit for or blame? Actually, nobody, nobody, nobody says anything nice about eugenics anymore. So Francis Galton is demonized for inventing this, uh, this, uh, this uh, whatever science is claimed science uh, that would try to improve human populations through selective breeding. So 1883, he used the word. He began the research. Um, uh, you know, the first 1865, 66, he publishes his first. Uh, papers on this topic, and then he kind of he moved to studying um, plants and animals, actually mostly the, the peas, interestingly enough, for a while, and then returned slowly to humans again when he began to get more support. So, and actually, Sam so, Galton said, you know, he had the he had the insight reading his cousin. His cousin is Charles Darwin, or they both shared one grandfather reading his cousins work on the uh, natural Charles, uh, Charles Darwin's work on, uh, you know, natural selection. That's 1859. So 1859 is his date, which is, which for, you know, for that reason, because Galton is given, or is, uh, is uh, because eugenics is attributed to Galton because Galton gave, gave, explained his inspiration in terms of Charles Darwin's work and Charles Darwin's 1859 for historians of science is just one of those, you know, one of those, uh, you know, um, you know, most central of years, most important of years. So that if we think that eugenics is kind of an outgrowth of the Darwinian evolutionary tradition, then 1859 and 1865 look like very important dates. And I'm saying, without saying that this is a full-blooded uh, eugenics, I'm saying that um, uh, that the the asylum doctors were anxious about the reproduction of the condition they treated uh, and were talking about the need to um, prevent or to do, what, to do what they could to block the reproduction of those people who had this inherited defect and to warn people not to marry into families that showed those defects. That was a very common kind of discussion within the medical alienists, the, uh, the asylum doctors, Going back, uh, you know, going back to at least to the eighteen forties, and um, and we find we can find quite a lot of it even before that.
0: Do you actually want to spend a little bit more time talking about selective or so-called rational breeding as social medicine, as you discuss it?
1: Um, well, but this is the other thing I guess I would I would say is that the, the asylum movement was born in a spirit of massive optimism. Uh, they thought that uh, a gentle kind of treatment with uh it, you know, applied early um you know which uh, bringing the put, putting the the patients in a in a, uh, a situation where they could uh, recover where they through um naturalistic i mean that is like working in men men working in the fields women in the laundries and so on this kind of kind of um routine, routinized Uh, you know, undemanding in a way, labor uh, that they could recover. Um, They show among the, the, i mentioned the asylum tables, they always had tables of cures. These were extremely favorable at first, especially in the United States and to some degree in other countries. But what happened was uh, even although they they claimed a lot of cures, um, the asylum population just went through the roof. It was unbelievable. It was way faster than... The growth of population. It became extremely expensive. People were, the asylum doctors were deeply discouraged by this. What was, what has gone wrong? What can we do? Well, meanwhile, so they're not the treatment, they didn't give up, you know, give up the effort to treat patients and they continued to think that they were curing some of them. But meanwhile, there were other ways they could, they, they hoped they could um, cut off the expansion of this terrible Condition and the one they got most interested in was keeping the keep blocking its reproduction, a different kind of public health move. The asylum was a public health institution. The doctors in the asylums saw their role not just as treating the patients in their in their asylums but also in controlling the the growth of insanity in the population at large and they saw they came to see of um, changing patterns of reproduction and above all keeping the insane from marrying and having children as the most promising uh, you know, uh, way they had to um, uh, to continue uh, to, 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 to stop the uh, increase of this terrible disease.
0: So significant portions of your discussion in part three of the book require familiarity with the concept of Mendelian genetics and single factor inheritance. I was wondering if you could give our listeners just a refresher on this concept and then um, discuss it within the debates uh, between biometricians and medical Mendelianists within Britain and America.
1: Well, um, so Mendelism, again, I said a little bit about this already. Mendelism, uh, I mean, as a, um, I mean, if the word gene comes into it a little bit, later but i'll just use that word the idea that the gene codes for something and perhaps something that we can see you know directly so perhaps the things that we the traits that we have ordinary names for like mental illness perhaps that's one or a few genes that would be the uh, that would be the idea um um the um the controversy was um, so let's say the those who uh, who opposed this view um, didn't necessarily deny that occasionally um, a trait, you know, like w- w- exhibited the the characteristics of, of of Mendelism, which which would be uh, the word is first segregation. That is, it divides into distinct types, not a continuum, but distinct types. And then that those types tend to reproduce themselves, or actually reproduce themselves in these very specific Mendelian ratios, um, and uh, and the biometric approach um, that either doubted that. I mean, actually, I don't find anybody who denied that there was that. that sometimes there was Mendelian segregation, which I say again is is a splitting into two distinct types so they thought that was uncommon and that for most of the traits that really mattered, especially human traits like intelligence or insanity, that these things actually came in degrees and, uh, and it was better to better to measure the trait than to suppose that every time you found a person who was in a mental institution that they had the gene for insanity or the gene for, um, um, you know, intelligence or, you know, athletic ability or whatever, whatever it was you were, you were interested in. So it's, uh, um, uh, the biometric uh, the biometric approach the, the phenotype. phenotype is the characteristic of the organism and uh you know and genotype is the uh, the array array of genes and um most of the most i mean the asylum tradition of human heredity didn't rarely i mean the online is curiously like like a gene but um but uh mostly they' they're what they're, they're not they, uh, they were looking to at, at characteristics and how they were reproduced. They were not mostly trying to find the gene and to see whether it, you know, see see how it behaved.
0: Who were Wilhelm Weinberg and Ernst Rudin, and why are they central figures in
1: your story? So, uh, Weinberg and Rudin are important German researchers uh, on uh, on heredity. Uh, uh, Rudin is the more kind of established figure, and he comes out of um, of psychiatric institutions called clinics. Um, that uh, began in the late nineteenth century, and that uh, allowed for, in, you know, for research on uh, on insanity, on uh, I mean, actually, on various things, but including the causes. And his institution, actually, it's originally the institution. Uh, 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 it's, it's in it's in Munich, and it's originally um, um, an institution which was uh, uh, it's, it's a place where the classification of insanity. Uh, was uh, redefined and uh, becomes quite powerful Rudin was a, was was uh, became the head of what was called the demographic division and um, um, was uh, uh, interested I- exactly in the kind of uh, how to understand the growth of insidi- of insanity and how to check that growth so uh um, and Rudin was an early convert to a mendelian kind of Understanding of heredity early means 1908 or so. Uh, that's about eight years after uh, Mendel became famous among botanists, uh, and he helped to show that um, that uh, insanity was inherited in uh, in uh, that Mendelian way that would produce uh, its characteristic ratios and would show you know show that kind of discrimination or that, that kind of uh, split between. Um, uh, those who had it and those who didn't. Um, uh, Weinberg is a different person. Rudin is in the center of psychiatric power in Munich. Weinberg was in Stuttgart in western southwestern Germany, a public health physician. He presided over o- over a lot of births. Uh, he was engaged with the medical statistics of the area, and he became rather experts, rather expert in statistics. He also learned some things from the from from uh, Francis Galton's kind of statistics and Carl Pearson who you know continued that and developed that tradition in the early 20th century. So they um, um, did a, uh, a an influential project about 1912, 13, 14 to try to establish with using all the best research techniques that really once you made all the necessary corrections it would prove to be Let's say that these the the categories, the newly developed categories of dementia precox, or which is kind of schizophrenia, or um, uh, manic depressive uh, disorder, that these would show the Mendelian characteristics. They did the experiment with all the statistics that was available of the time, and again, 1912, 13, 14, and were uh, and the result, which they hope they hope to get a ratio of. In, in a certain group of 25% insane, they got something like four and a half percent. So they were deeply disappointed by that, and they proceeded with uh, actually, though they continued to, or I would say Rudin now continued to hope that he would establish, you know, you know, the the, the real Mendelian basis for uh, insanity. Uh, went on with a more empirical approach, again empirical phenotypic, that is, looking at the trait. Uh, he had funds from um uh, from a a uh, rich american financial guy and then actually later from the rockefeller foundation so he was very prestigious and very well supported to carry on this work and to try to establish what was what, what the real uh, problems were the real causes of the real genetic causes of insanity he also was prepared to intervene. He was, uh, that was very important for him, though. He said, he always said uh, that, uh, that any kind of a uh, accepting sterilization would always be a choice of the person sterilized until 1933, when the Nazis came to power and they almost immediately passed a mandatory sterilization law and Rudin supported that completely and, uh, you know, and uh, favored its implementation in a quite forceful uh, way. uh, And you know, because he was he was not alone, but he and a few other um, human genetics types or human uh, students of human heredity had the kind of expertise that made them very influential for trying to implement for figuring out how to implement the the Nazi uh, sterilization law.
0: So how in a little bit more detail was empirical heredity prognosis used then in Germany during that period to support the 1934 sterilization law.
1: Okay, well first you wouldn't you don't want to exaggerate the extent to which the what they should, what what they said they were going to do was actually done. I have seen some of the these uh, interesting forms on which they uh registered the information that was required to sterilized and some people were sterilized for hereditary reasons without or uh, uh, under the hereditary law without a single relative with um, mental illness being identified. So we don't want to suppose that they adhere to their own standards. It's a not for nothing were they the Nazis, you know. Uh, but um, uh, but the way, the way I mean, uh, let's say the kind of evidence that uh, um, Rudin was had al- was already producing before the nazis and uh, continued to show afterwards was uh simply well taking um looking at the descendants the of uh, the offspring and the fat the descendants of people who had been diagnosed as uh, as insane as as with uh by this time schizophrenia or um uh, manic depressive and looking to see how many of their uh, Children or other kinds of relatives. How much did the uh, the, the probability of uh, showing this kind of mental illness increase in the children uh, when it was had been diagnosed in the parents? And actually, it's that's a little bit too simple because he also was very interested in sort of in between conditions. He called psychopathy and neuropathy, which are not full mental illness. But anyhow, using these rather loose categories, he ends up with a huge number of people. Who are, uh, you know, are a, huge, a huge percentage of people who uh, show mental illness because their family members, or you know, he says, on account of inheriting it, inheriting, inheriting it from their family members, and that kind of argument was very valuable for pushing the law in the first place, and probably, I mean, so the, so it has some role in the in in, 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 the, in pushing the law in the first place, and then provided an argument for uh, for. A lot of sterilizations. Now, I'm actually not going to say that that argument that uh, Rudin was, though no, he was fav- he favored the sterilizations. But I don't uh, I don't have an estimate as to how many of them or how how much it was increased on account of the work that he did. But he was absolutely supporting it, and his uh, his uh, claims and his rhetoric were important for for justifying uh, the, uh, the the sterilization law and its implementation.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're about to run out of time. So I wanted to end on this last question, which is, uh, I wanted to know what was the most unexpected discovery that you made while conducting research for this book?
1: Um, you know, there are lots of little discoveries like people I never heard of who proved to be you know, quite influential. Um, and, um, you know, I go into this with quite a lot of uh, not, expe- not expecting a very high quality of work. And while I'm not going to say that it was, that the work is, uh, is, is is brilliant there were actually quite a lot of serious people and in a way the real the, the thing that shocked me or surprised me most and it happened actually right at or right at the start when the the rather um whatever less uh original kind of work i was planning to do turned into this project on this uh, on the uh study of uh, of or the study of the inheritance of Mental illness and mental and uh, and feeble mindedness was just to discover a that there was this huge tradition that nobody, including me, seemed to have noticed or at least noticed uh, as a thing that mattered much, um, and that the doctors were not, you know, the, the the doctors doing this kind of work were not just. Um, uh, you know, gathering data, it made, I thought at first that made sense to me that a person like, people like Carl Pearson or, or or Rudin would use the data that was available to them to study conditions that they were interested in, like mental illness. It turned out that um, uh, that the doctors uh, were already deeply into this kind of study. That was true in the United States. It was true in Britain. It was true in Germany, Switzerland, Scandinavia, um France. Uh, and uh, so, um, and, uh, that the, the, there was this whole tradition of investigation statistical based on the data, which, uh, again, nobody had really noticed, including me, and which was, um, you know, a serious tradition. And, uh, this, so that, and that, that was that, that, that kind of opened up the, the topic for me, uh, you know, and sent me back into back all the way. And then when I got, actually, I guess I knew by then too, the other, uh, well, maybe a less astonishing surprise, but surprise in a way was that, uh, um, uh, that this is completely continuous with uh, the traditions with the Mendelian and the biometric traditions that um, uh, where uh, the study of human heredity really developed in the early 20th century, that they're using the data. They are depending on the, they were depending on the expertise of uh, well by this time, uh, Um, alienists or psychiatrists asylum doctors uh, and also by this time um, a school psychologist who studied uh, mental weakness so it was just really this recognition this discovery that uh, that uh, that there's this whole tradition i didn't know anything about and uh, and uh, was uh, really a uh, you know a quite quite a serious enterprise going on for most of a century before the the work that we identify with uh, genetics took off, you know, around 1900.
0: Well, thank you so much for bringing these hidden histories to light and for your time,
1: Dr. Porter. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. This has been New Books in Science.